surface, casual, non-spiritual. In other words, hey, how about the weather? What do you think about uh, maybe politics? You know, if that if maybe that's safe. If you know them well enough, you could probably talk about some things. Hey, what about the ball team? How's your family? You know, those sorts of things are generally safe conversations. But really entering into people's lives, I think that we could agree this afternoon that that is something we struggle with. And so think about what is it that that causes me to pull back from that. What I spoke about in the morning service perhaps is a contributing factor, fear. Um, some, some folks that I speak to, and, and I, I sense this, I feel this, would say time. I just feel like I don't have time to be able to enter into people's lives. I've got too much to do. I, my attention is elsewhere, and I can't really afford to take the time to, to pay attention to others and enter into their lives. Because and, and we'll talk about this a little bit, I think, tomorrow night. Uh, what you find is that when you start to enter into people's lives, it's messy. And you usually end up mixed up in stuff that you'd rather not be mixed up in. And so sometimes you think about it. Think about what it is for you that is a hindrance or that makes it difficult to enter in to people's lives and minister to them with the word of God. A second, we talked about boldness in the morning service, but a second key to entering in to people's lives, I believe is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. And in this, we're going to talk about the question of motivation. Why do we do what we do? Why should we preach the gospel, and who is it that we're actually trying to please? And I want to make an assertion before we read the text, and then we want to counter that assertion from the Word of God. And the assertion is this. Many believers are unconsciously servants to the opinions of others. They're servants to the opinions of their family members, their neighbors, other professing Christians, and society at large. And this dictates a lot of the decisions that we make in our life, and we will find, actually, that we are serving the wrong master, that we are looking to please the wrong person. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse number 4, the Apostle Paul says this, "...but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel..." Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. So we notice in this text that the Apostle Paul talks about how he was concerned to be pleasing God and not men. And that's what I want you to think with me about for just the next few minutes, the importance of pleasing God. 
And if I am really concerned about pleasing God, how is that going to have an impact on me entering into people's lives with the gospel? Now, there's several things that we notice in the text that relate to pleasing God and not men. The first fact that we notice, which has a bearing on this, is in verse number four. And it's this thought, you and I need to remember that the gospel is a stewardship. The word that is used in our text is the word trust. We were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. And that idea of a trust is something that we are familiar with. Now, I hope you understand and appreciate this morning or this afternoon what a privilege it is for us to be entrusted with the gospel. It's a tremendous privilege for us. What this means that we are entrusted with the gospel is that we have experienced the power of the gospel in our own lives. Our eyes have been opened. So where our eyes were blinded and we thought that salvation was found in any number of things, God was gracious to us. Our eyes were opened. We received an understanding of our true condition and of the importance of the gospel, and the gospel changed our lives. The reason you're here this afternoon is presumably because the gospel has changed your life. The gospel has made a difference. If I think about what does the gospel mean to me, it means everything. Without the gospel, I I wouldn't have the job that I have. I wouldn't have the family that I have. I wouldn't live in the house where I live. I, I wouldn't have the friends that I have. I mean, just think, you know, for me, if I think about what what did the gospel have to do with me and with what is in my life, it's everything. Everything came because of the gospel. And this is a precious, precious gift. We don't often think about what a precious gift the gospel is. God's intention is he's given us the gospel not to keep to ourselves, and the New Testament is clear about this, but he's given it to us as a stewardship or as a trust. His intention is not for us to keep the gospel for ourselves or to ourselves. His intention is for us to take this message and publish it as far and as wide as we possibly can to as many people as we possibly can share this message with, it's clear in the scriptures, this is what God intends. A trust is something that is given to you, but does not belong to you. A a trust fund, I think we're familiar with that. A trust fund is a financial account that is given to the oversight of a trustee or a board of trustees, and their job is to use the resources in that account to further the desires of the person who created the account. They're not allowed to spend it on themselves. They're not allowed to do things for themselves with it. The the goal is that they are to Utilize those funds to further the interest of the person who created the account in the first place. Now, the gospel is a trust fund. 
It's God who created the account in the first place and who shared it with us. And then he has given us a responsibility to utilize the resources in that account for furthering his interests. And what are his interests? His interests are that every creature would hear the message, that every person on this planet would be impacted by the riches that are found in Christ Jesus. So when he says we are put in trust of the gospel, it means a couple of things. First of all, it means that the gospel doesn't actually belong to us. It it wasn't ours in the first place. Now, we have benefited from it, but it doesn't belong to us. And, And the implication of this is that the gospel is not ours to define or express in whatever way we want to do so. It's it's God's. It belongs to him. He's the one who has already defined it, and he is the one who has told us how we ought to express it. The gospel is a message, and you and I are messengers who have been entrusted with that message. It would be treason for us to tweak the message or to change the message to something that we think would be more fitting and more acceptable to our society. So trust means that the gospel does not belong to us. The second thing that trust means is that whenever there is trust, there is responsibility. With trust comes responsibility. And by the way, in relationships, this is true. And when responsibility is not fulfilled, trust is compromised. And the thing someone asked me the other day in a a counseling setting, how do I regain trust with my spouse? And the answer to that is by fulfilling responsibility and doing it consistently. You can't demand that someone trust you. You can only try to earn that trust back again by behaving in a way that you are fulfilling your responsibilities. All right, so God has given us a trust. That trust, which is in the gospel, requires us to do something with it. There is responsibility. If there was a trust fund that was set up and the trustees who were to oversee that account were just ignoring the resources, they weren't reinvesting the dividends, they weren't spending it in the way that the person who established the fund had set up, they would be legally liable for their negligence. In the same way, we have responsibility that is given to us. Paul states as much. He says, we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, and this has everything to do with how we speak. Even so, we speak. The reason he entered in is because he had a responsibility and an obligation to communicate the gospel. You and I are entrusted with the gospel so that we will be messengers of the gospel, ambassadors of Christ. To put it another way, the reason that you were saved and left on this earth is to share the gospel with others who need to be saved. If God didn't have anything for you to do, he would have already taken you home to heaven. The fact that you are still here means he has something for you to do, a responsibility for you to fulfill. So we please God, first of all, by remembering 
that the gospel is a stewardship he has given to us. He's expecting us to do something with that stewardship. Second of all, we please God by remembering that God tries our hearts. And that's what he says in the end of verse 4. He says, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. Now, I want to point out a couple of things about this. First of all, it's a lot easier to please men than it is to please God. Because men cannot really see our heart. And if we could just figure out what men want, then we can give them what they want and they'll be happy and then everything will be fine. And it's not that complicated because they can't really see why we're doing what we're doing. But God, he's different. He sees the heart. He knows our true motivation. And it is sobering to me to think that God examines my heart. He is looking at my motivation, and especially in this case, he's looking at my motivation for why I do or don't share the gospel with other people. He is trying my heart in regards to fulfilling my responsibility of viewing the the gospel as a stewardship. Now, as believers, we have ways to perhaps make ourselves appear a certain way to other believers, to make it look like we're fulfilling our responsibilities when maybe we aren't. Or perhaps we do fulfill our responsibilities, but we do so with the wrong motivation. And we might be able to uh, deceive or fool other people. Actually, we can do that fairly easily, but we can never fool God. We can never deceive God about what is really in our heart. And I want to suggest to you that in this area of entering into other people's lives, it's good for us to get before God and say, God, I want you to try my heart and I want you to show me what is in my heart. Show me what it is that is that is keeping me from doing what I ought to do. Now, in this case, the Apostle Paul knew that God was trying his heart, and because of that, he did what he did. He wanted to be prepared to stand before God. Do you understand this this afternoon? One day, you and I will give an account for how we have lived and what we have done with the opportunities afforded us to share the gospel. One day we're going to stand before God and, and understand this has nothing to do with our salvation. If you're saved, your, your eternity is not in question, but this is a matter of rewards. And God is going to examine your life and my life, and we're going to give an answer to God for the opportunities that he has given to us. And I don't know about you, I'm, a, I'm sad to say I could look back in my life and see that there have been some times when I missed opportunities. There have been times when God opened a door of opportunity for me and because of fear or reluctance or impatience or busyness or any number of other reasons, I sidestepped that opportunity and went on with my life 
later to reflect and realize, wow, I missed it. God brought that opportunity before me and I missed it. And I would assume that you can probably identify with that sentiment. And then it's really sobering to think, one day I'm going to stand before God. And I wonder how many opportunities there are that I don't remember that he put in front of me, but I just was not tuned in to what he was doing. Now, the reality that God tries our hearts also dictates the manner in which we communicate the gospel. So what I was speaking about in the last message about boldness to speak the whole truth and not to cut corners on the message of the gospel, this has everything to do with realizing that God is trying my heart. God is watching and he cares about how I communicate the gospel. Sometimes I need to ask the question, what am I hoping to get for sharing the gospel? Sometimes people are hoping to get recognition. Sometimes people are hoping to get some kind of a pat on the back. Sometimes people are hoping to get some sort of praise from other men, maybe some other Christians who are there with them, who are watching and will admire the way that they have shared the gospel. Sometimes people are looking for something other than the right motivation. They don't have the, the right concern. Really what we ought to have in concern in, in our mind, what we ought to be concerned about is the glory of God and the good of that person's soul. But, but we ought to really be thinking about, okay, this is what the Lord wants me to do. This is what would be pleasing to God in this situation for me to share the gospel. Unfortunately, though we know that God tries our hearts, it is true that oftentimes we are more concerned about pleasing men than pleasing God. And that brings us to the third thought from this passage that I want to point out to you, and that is that we should remember that the opinions of men are short-lived. The opinions of men are short-lived. Paul mentions in verse 4 that he was very careful not to be pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. He also said in verse 6, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. So he's very clear that he avoided, even eschewed, the opinions of men. You and I have the unfortunate consequence of often being concerned about what do people think? What are people going to think of me? And it's possible that we can get caught up in pleasing men or seeking glory of men. Now, why would we do this? The reason is because we're usually looking for some sort of a temporal reward. He mentions a cloak of covetousness and flattering words. Flattering words are used to get people to like us, but they're insincere. Flattery is a form of manipulation, to get someone to do something because they feel a certain way, but it's insincere and it's not true. It's praise that is used insincerely to get something out of someone else. So we want to watch out for flattering words and we want to watch out for covetousness. Covetousness is the gain of this world. It is the things that the world offers to us. When I was thinking about the opinions of men, 
it struck me. How many times have I shrunk back in fear from sharing the gospel with someone that I would never see again? I would never see them again. You know, maybe I was in an airport or I, I sitting next to someone on an airplane or in another city. And I, I knew that I had an opportunity to share the gospel, but I stepped back in fear. And then you analyze that and you think, why am I so concerned about what someone thinks when there is a very high chance I will never see them again? What does it matter if they don't like me? What does it matter if they don't like something that I said? But we, are, we tend to be bound by this idea of pleasing men and telling men the things that they want to see. This is irrational fear. We, we tend to fear what man can do to us, and we tend to obey man rather than God, which, of course, is the opposite of what the apostles said that they did when Peter said we ought to obey God rather than man. And, and in our mind, we think, well, that's the kind of Christian that I am. I want to obey God rather than men. But the truth is, many times we live obeying men rather than God and especially in this area of sharing the gospel. Now, remember, I said the opinions of men are short-lived. At the most, men's opinions can only affect us for the short season that we are here on this earth. Most of men's opinions are going to affect us for an even shorter period of time than that. Like I mentioned, you know, somebody that you're probably never going to see again, and, and you, you're prompted by the Holy Spirit to hand them a tract, and you wrestle with that, but really, you hand them a gospel tract, chances are you're never going to hear from them, you're never going to cross paths with them. What does it matter what they think of you, but we have this wrestling match in our heart? The opinions of men are very short-lived. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, one of the things that we struggle with concerning fear is I'm, I'm afraid that that person, maybe a family member or a neighbor or a coworker, I'm afraid that that person is going to be upset with me. I'm afraid that they're going to be offended by the message of the gospel because I know that it's different than what they have believed. Okay, well, that is a possibility that they could be offended with you. But then think about the other side. Think about how thankful they will be if they... If they understand and believe the gospel and their life is transformed. Think about how grateful they will be that you were bold enough to share the gospel with them. Or even in eternity, if they never get saved, when they stand before the great white throne, think about the sense of responsibility that they will have because you were faithful to share the gospel to them and they will know that you spoke the truth to them. Yes, it'll be too late at that point to make a difference, but at least you spoke the truth when you had the opportunity. Men's opinions are short-lived, but we tend to be enslaved by men's opinions. Teenagers. Teenagers are always trying to fit in. They're trying to fit in in the way that they look, in the way that they act, and teenagers, by and large are terribly insecure. They, they are not very secure in who they are. Do you remember being a teenager, some of you adults? you remember 
the, the agony of trying to figure out what you were supposed to do and how to fit in and how to look. And I remember, um, I'll, you know, when I was a teen, when I was a teen boy, we, ha- we wore ball caps a lot. Maybe some of you can, can remember that. We always had, always had a hat, always had a hat. And it was uh, in my house, we weren't allowed to wear those in the house. That was forbidden by my dad. Uh, he's old-fashioned. You know, if you, wore the, if you wore that hat in the door, you're going to be in trouble. All right. But I'm going somewhere. So the way we did our hats is our ball caps were, were bent. You know, they were rounded like this. And actually, we would, we would overbend them sometimes. And I remember, and it wasn't comfortable, so I didn't make mine really bent, but some of the guys who were really popular when I was in high school, you know, they would bend it like almost round, and, and it's like weird looking, all right? But they were bent. Now, what is popular today with ball caps? Flat. And here's what I think about them. They're stupid. <laughs> they don't look right. Ball caps are supposed to be rounded, but why does everybody wear flat? Because somewhere along the line, somebody who was cool started wearing flat, and everybody else thought, oh, that looks really cool, and next thing you know, now everybody's got to have flat lids. So now when you go to buy a hat, you can't just buy a hat, you got to try to find out, is it a flat lid or a curved lid? Because I don't want a flat one. Now, that's a, a, silly, a silly example, but, you know, people are usually trying to to get the vibe for what does everybody feel or what does everybody think is looks good or what does everybody think is acceptable and let me fit in with that. Now if we transfer this to spiritual matters, we're going to tend to be reluctant to share with people the truth because the truth is always going to be on the the outskirts. It's always going to be in the minority. And, and it's going to be the few who understand the truth, but we're concerned about what people think. And because of that, we're going to be reluctant to share the truth with people who desperately need to hear the truth. He says in verse number five, neither at any time used we flattering words. So what if we successfully flatter men but don't tell them the truth. One of the fears that I have at our church when I stand in the pulpit is that people would be flattered or wowed by the things that I say and they would come to our services because they like the atmosphere and they like the challenge from the scriptures, but it terrifies me to think that they might come for those reasons and never get saved. And if that happens, and I suppose it could happen, but if that happens, I want it to be in spite of, not because of the way that I communicate. I want to make sure that I am, that I am fulfilling my responsibility to plainly speak the the scriptures, and call people to repentance, to call them to the place where they understand they have a responsibility before God. What good would it do for us to build a big crowd of religious people coming 
if the majority of them were not born again. We don't want to do that. Now, we're not, by definition, we're not trying to have a small crowd, but we also don't want to cut corners or use flattering words. At the end of life, what good will it do if you flatter your relatives and tell them nice A lot of the things that are said about the Bible and God are, are like cotton candy. They don't mean anything. And anybody can agree with them. You know, just got to have faith. You just got to believe. And man, everybody, it doesn't matter whether they're saved or not, they're all like, yeah, that's right. Got to believe. I've been believing. All right, good. You're believing. So at some point, we have to get more plain in our speech because, you know, for instance, I, I end up preaching a fair amount of funerals, and at funerals, everybody is always like, it's going to be okay. You're going to see them again. You know, they're, they're, they're with the Lord. They earned their wings, all this kind of stuff. And, and, you know, when I'm preaching a funeral, I don't want to be rude. I don't, I don't want to be abrasive. But I also don't want to just say things that mean nothing. I want to make sure that people understand there's, there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. I, I want them to understand that there's a responsibility to believe the gospel. I don't just want to say nice-sounding things that everybody goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh and then walks out and hasn't been stirred. You understand what I'm saying? So what good does it do if we made everybody happy with the things that we said and we flattered them, but we didn't tell them the truth? If your coworker asks you about the hope of salvation, don't lead them to believe that your hope of salvation is in your church membership or your morality, make sure that they understand that your hope of salvation is in Jesus Christ and Him alone. What if you and I gain money and financial security, but we never share the gospel, which is the greatest treasure? What a tragedy that would be. And, and we are currently living in a cultural environment where people legitimately are concerned about the possible loss of their job if they share the gospel. you got to be careful what you say and how you say it. And if you work at any sort of a, a larger business or a corporation, chances are you have to go through sensitivity training, and you've got to learn how to be politically correct and all these sorts of things. This is a, a function of our society. But then as believers, we really have to grapple with Okay, I'm not going out to try to lose my job because obviously I need to feed my family. But at the same time, at what point is there a line that I won't step across as far as what I'm allowed to say and not say to someone on my personal time at work? You see, there, there is something there for us to consider. And if all we think about is, well, I want to retain my job and I want to make sure that I can provide for my family then we're going to be apt to step back from our responsibility to share the gospel. I know, you know, some of the men at our church wrestle with this. We have men who work in larger corporations 
and I talk with them. You know, there's one of our men who's a he's a pretty bold witness at work, but he really wrestles with it. You know, he recently had a chance to say something in front of his boss, and he thought, okay, is this really what I ought to do? And then he he really believed God wanted him to, to go for it, and so he did. He had a spiritual conversation right in front of his boss, and he thought, this, this might be the end. This might be the end of my job. But in that case, his boss responded positively and and was open to what was being said. And, you know, it, it doesn't always go that way, by the way. But as believers, we've got to really wrestle with these things because if all we're trying to do is placate the world system and go along with the way that the world is and not stir things up too much, it's unlikely that we're going to be the ambassadors of Christ that we ought to be. And so we have to wrestle with that. What if you and I receive glory from men but have no eternal rewards? Have we gained anything if when we die we have millions of dollars in the bank and we've amassed a beautiful house and lands and and some things to pass down to our children and our grandchildren, but we have no heavenly rewards? Which is more important? So actually, and you say, well, that has to do with eternity, but it has to do with now. Because it's now, right here in this life, that we have the opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven. This is the opportunity that God has given us to make sure that when we go to heaven, there's a reward there for us. And that really brings us to the last thought that's in this passage, and that is that you and I should remember that eternal glory ought to be our focus. We ought to really be focused in our life on that which is eternal. There's a contrast in the passage between the glory of men, verse 6, and the glory of God. He says there, neither nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others. He was careful not to seek the glory of men. You and I need to ask ourselves the question, can I truly say that I'm living so that God will be glorified? Am I living my life in such a way that God is put on a pedestal that people think more and greater thoughts of God? Is the the goal of my life that God would be lifted up? Or am I seeking for men to glorify me? Now, what's interesting about seeking the glory of God is that when we seek to glorify God, he is promised that he's going to glorify us. He is going to exalt us. Now, there's a whole mechanism that's involved in this, involving becoming a servant and humility. Philippians chapter 2 talks about this. But understand that in this life, you and I practically ought to be seeking, how can I glorify God? How can I praise God? We just finished in our, in our own church on Wednesday nights a study through the book of Psalms. And uh, it took me a long time to get through the book of Psalms. I, you know, we didn't go like nonstop. We took some breaks along the way and did some other things. But I think I started, I started in Psalm 1 
10 years ago, maybe. And so Wednesday night, we finished Psalm 150. But I was struck by the thought in Psalm 150 that our praise of God is not just reserved for the assembly. Although the assembly, it is appropriate to praise God in the assembly, it is all through the Psalms that we ought to be praising God in the public square. We ought to be praising God among the heathen. That's how it's often phrased in Psalms. We ought to be praising God among people who don't know God because they're the ones who need to realize who God is. They need to see God lifted up. And so we have this responsibility. We are seeking for eternal glory. He says, I'm not so concerned about the glory of men. I'm not concerned about people thinking that I'm a great person. I'm not so concerned about winning awards for the nicest person at work. I'm not so concerned about those sorts of things. I'm not seeking the glory of men. I'm seeking the glory of God. And when we are seeking the glory of God, it's because we have an eternal focus. And herein lies a significant problem with us entering into people's lives. We do not have our eyes on the eternal. We have our eyes on the temporal. We have our eyes on the here and now. We're mostly thinking about what will benefit me, what will further my agenda, what will help me down the path of my life to achieve my goals And those goals are all wrapped up in this life. And we're forgetting that soon, very, very soon, we are leaving this life. And we're going to be with the Lord. We are also forgetting that soon and very soon, those people that we are interacting with are leaving this life. And they are going out into eternity. If we have an eternal focus, it's going to give us a different perspective of people's lives. Have you ever been intimidated by someone who was wealthy and powerful? Maybe you met somebody who had a lot of money, or you got around somebody who was famous and you had an opportunity to meet them, and maybe you were intimidated by them. And that's a, that's a natural response, especially for people who are average normal, you know, working class people, and you say, I don't, I don't really fit in here. I remember a, a few months ago, somebody paid for my wife and I to go to this, this inn, and we didn't, you know, I mean, we knew, it, we knew it would be a nice place, and we looked online, whatever, so we went there. And let's just say when we got there, it's not the kind of place we would have ever gone for ourselves because we never could have afforded it. And we, we were clued in when you entered a gated entrance and you parked at a stand and you gave your keys to a valet and they took my SUV and I don't know where they took it and they parked it somewhere and they they said, when you need your car back, come and see us and we'll bring it for you. And I looked at my wife like, okay, we've never, Holiday Inn doesn't do this. (laughs) And then you start to realize, you know, like Ferraris and Lamborghinis and Mercedes and I'm like, whoo, all right, should have brought the fancy car. <laughs> but you know what we realized and, and we had a nice time. It was it was 
very nice of uh, the folks who sent us there, and we had a nice time together, my wife and I. As we sat there in the restaurant having dinner that night, you look around and you just realize they're just normal people. They're just, they're just normal people. They have maybe more money, probably some important, powerful people. I wouldn't know because I don't get around powerful people enough to know who's who. But there's probably some hoodly-toodly kind of people there that night. But then you observe them, you, you watch them, and you realize they're people with eternal souls. And they're people who maybe are important and powerful and rich right now, but in just a short time, they're stepping into eternity. And eternity is a game changer for everyone. You don't take any of that into eternity with you. So as believers, we have to step back from being intimidated by these kind of people. We also have to step back from the tendency that we have to look down on people who are on the other end of the spectrum, people who are poverty-stricken, people who are in brokenness, people who are assailed with the, the consequences of awful sin. And it's all around us. You know, the, uh, the opiate addictions in our area are just running rampant and destroying people's lives. And you run into people who are right in the middle of the day and they're high. People who are, who are peddling drugs down in the neighborhood. And you realize this is reality for a lot of people. But listen, those people, they need the Lord. And then lots of people who are right in the middle, who are average, who are normal, who are living the best moral life that they can live apart from the, the God of the Bible, apart from salvation. They're trying to, to just keep their life together and support their family and do the things, but they themselves are one day going to step into eternity, and it's coming sooner than you or they realize. You say, okay, well, how does... A motivation for pleasing God helped me to enter into their lives because it gives you an eternal perspective and it helps you to realize that any time God allows you to intersect with another person, he is giving you an opportunity to touch them for eternity. He is giving you an opportunity to please him rather than them short-term by helping them to understand that eternity is looming. You and I, one of the reasons that we don't enter into people's lives, that we're reluctant to do so, is because we're allowing the wrong opinions to shape the decisions that we're making for our lives. If God's opinion really matters... Would you agree with me that it is God's priority for us to be sharing the gospel? I, I don't see any way we can get away from that in the scriptures. So my conclusion about my own life, and you make, you make the, the judgment about your life, but my conclusion about my life is too often I am more concerned about the opinions of men than I am about the opinions of God. Because I know what God wants Sometimes I think I know what men want. Have you ever been wrong? I can think back in my life where I made a premature judgment 
about someone not being interested in the gospel. Based on what I observed about their body language and the way they carried themselves, and I just assumed, no way they're interested in the gospel. And it was like the Lord said, okay, well, if you're not willing, then I'll use someone else. And someone else intersected with their life and began talking to them about the Lord. And then they got saved and started following Christ. And then you start to realize that all that time, I realize all that time I was judging that they were not interested. They were actually in their heart seeking God and wanting answers but they didn't know how to ask, and, and no one thought to ask. And then I thought, and I had an opportunity to ask, but I judged them as uninterested, i.e., I was more concerned about pleasing men than pleasing God. Now, I'm glad in those cases that those people came to know the Lord, that God used somebody else and drew them to himself, but I'm ashamed of myself that I was more concerned about pleasing men than pleasing God. This week, I suggest that if you put God's interests first, then you'll find that he's going to draw you to the place of being a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's, he is trying our hearts, and we want to please God. I hope you'll come back tomorrow so we can talk a little bit about the place of compassion and gentleness in sharing the gospel I think this is a major way that, or a major advantage that we have, an opportunity that we have to enter into people's lives. If we will just see the, the opportunity that is before us, we'll begin to realize that there are multiple opportunities every day for us to express gentleness, kindness, and compassion to other people, which often paves a way for the sharing of the gospel. And I hope that you'll do what I asked you to do this morning. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2. Sit down and read the whole text all at once and just think about Paul entering into these people's lives and try to put all of this in context as we go forward.